First question you asked everybody is, when you first got to the league, who was the first person to bust your ass? Oh, wow. Well, I got in the league in 1993. I was drafted by the Mavericks fourth overall, and we were horrible. So <laughs> we won, like, like, I think 13 games my first year. And my first, I can remember my first exhibition game was against uh, the Clippers when they had Mark Aguirre and Dominique Wilkins at mm. the forward spots. That was the first time that I realized that I could play in the league. But I think the first person that got me was um, Charles Barkley. He got me. I didn't expect much, you know what I mean? But a lot of people don't realize that if you took Michael Jordan out of the league, Charles Barkley might have been the best player in the league at that particular time. Yeah. And um, so a lot of people forget about Charles and see him on TV and everything like that. But, you know, he was a, a beast. I mean, he can run for days, not run for days, but he was very athletic, right. agile, could handle the ball, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, uh, powerful. And he used to joke with me all the time. And when he would guard me and stuff like that, he would tell me to stop dribbling the ball because he didn't like forwards handling the ball like that. So I would say Charles Barkley was the guy that, that gave me the business and made me reevaluate my position in the league. And then also he was the only guy, there's only three guys that I've gotten autographs from. That's uh, Charles Barkley, Allen Iverson, and Akeem Olajuwon. Mm. So those are my three. That's a good group right there. Yo, 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 we live on location. Me and D-Miles still staying safe. We in Orlando chilling. This one, we coming to the big dog. We coming and we got the monster in the building from Harlem, straight out of New York, UK's finest. All-star legend in the league. And now he a big time boss beyond basketball, owning so much stuff after it. It don't make no sense, man. This is big for us. Y'all don't know, y'all need to learn. We got Jamal. Monster, mash burn in the building with us, y'all. Straight out in Miami, coming to us from Miami, Florida. <laughs> what it do, big dog? It is. <laughs> Brought to you by Thigh Style. I used to look forward to our matchups with you because I knew you was a great scorer and I, I knew I was good at defense and I wanted to just disrupt all the, the great scores. You know what I'm saying? Coming into the league. Like, your, one thing that I loved about you and your game is, like, your pace yeah. from college and everything. Like, nobody can speed you up. You can't slow you down. Like, you always played at your own pace. Mm-hmm. And I remember playing as you, you used to bust my ass. Like, I used to be pissed about that shit. I used to try to use my athleticism, my quickness, and that shit didn't work at all. You just do what you want to do, get it where you want to get it at. You took what I gave you. You speed up, you slow down. Where you get your pace from? Well, I was born and raised in Harlem, and I played with a lot of guards. And, um, and I was always tall for my age so I was six foot seven in high school and everybody wants you to put you at center or whatever I was six three at 13 so everybody wants you to play center so I started to handle the ball because a lot of the guards in New York City didn't, didn't pass the ball exactly they dribble they couldn't I yeah. so, <laughs> so I used to, I decided that you know what I'm gonna rebound the ball and bring it up myself and that's where it started for me and then instead of 
rebounding the ball just to make a play, I started to run the offense from there. So I started to develop pace and being able to manipulate the ball at an early age, you know, and started to use. I never considered myself a great defender, but I also considered myself a good defender because I was a very good offensive player. You know, and I think very good offensive players can be naturally good defenders because you know where to anticipate that, you know where things are going to happen yeah. and, and the different angles and stuff. So for me, you'd have seen it all before. Yeah, you'd have seen it all. So for me, it was a combination of pace, but also being able to get you on my body rather quickly mm-hmm. and then to manipulate. And as you guys know, back in the days, you could hand check. Exactly. And for a guy that can handle the ball, we love for you to hand check because I can turn you any particular way with that particular ball and go by you and lose leverage against you. So for me, it was all about handling and also being able to make the pass. And to be honest, I had more trouble with guys like Quentin Richardson than I had guys with length because guys like with Quentin, he was strong, sturdy, you know, he can beat me to the spot. And then also when I spun, he had enough body to kind of, you know, leverage me off. But when it got to the long, quicker guys like yourself and Scotty Pittman, to me, it was, I can play with it. I can hesitate. Turns, yeah. <laughs> I can't yeah. wait to see D-Miles there. I'm going to fuck him up. <laughs> you did that. Obviously, to me, I struggled with the length and all that. When somebody was my size or whatever, or a little bit taller than me and strong, like, oh, come on, I could I could deal with that because when somebody going to get strong, I had counters. I'm going to bang you and bait you. And yeah. then I'm as soon as I feel you think I'm about to come in, I'm gone that way. But like, the length, except D Miles, I could buzz D Miles' ass, but the no, Carolina, you know that list. You know, that's why he said Princess, it. You know, I had problems with that, but D Miles, I had him in my back pocket. You know, what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I do all that shit by the back of my head. Uh, uh-uh, you can't do that. No booty bumping, no booty bumping out here. No, I ain't let you do that. I ain't, putting, I ain't gonna let you touch my body. None of that shit. I, I meet him up top. Yeah. So for me, when I, when it got to guys with limp, the one thing that I looked at was my initial move was you know, see if I can get your feet to get happy and dance. And then once I knew your feet could dance with any move, I can control you at that particular time. So my my dad was a professional boxer. He fought Larry Holmes and Ken Norton. So he taught me a lot about utilizing the jab and different things like that. And to me, that was just footwork, Mm. you know? So once I got you moving where I wanted you to move, oh, I can control you. Guys that I had problems with was... Guys like Quentin and another guy, Dennis Scott, was another Dennis guy. Scott, and reason why, because if you give him that initial fake, you know, he, he was he was a guy I would call like uh, skinny fat. You know what I mean? You give him that initial fake, he ain't going for it because he needed more time to react. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there was no crossover there. So I had to get to a hezzy and go with him. Let me just so, say, um, 3D is going to appreciate this. And he's going to want all his old coaches <laughs> to know that, look, I'm the guy that, that Mash Burner said he struggled with. <laughs> Jamal was <laughs> Mash Burner saying he had problems with Nobody would expect this. This is shot, sideline, shawty, leave it. Three shooters yeah. paradise and everything else. They Mash Burner saying he had problems with 3D. Dennis Scott and uh, Glenn Robinson were probably my toughest. Big dog. Big dog. Big dog Big was dog. Um, something he, else. Yeah, and I played him in the playoffs, and he was one of those guys, you know, one, two, dribble, and he can rise on it. And his yeah. shot was... And high art. 
Yeah. yeah, he used to fuck me up too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. giving me that business. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he gets enough props for what he was able to deliver and put in the NBA, you know, even as a college basketball player at Purdue. Best you know? ever. I love that Best you are ever. saying all of these things because literally we just had him on here the other day and we just told him that exact same thing. Same for you though. These young boys. They not informed enough about y'all boys and what how y'all really brought it, how y'all really paved the way and made way for them. Like, you know what I'm saying? Especially when you look at like you, big dog. I tell D D Miles all the time, like I, I got two boys. I feel like they both gonna be somewhere between six, five, six, seven, I hope six, eight. But I'm yeah. telling you, like D Miles, you heard me say this. I be showing, I show them big dog, I show them mellow, I show them KD, I show them you, I show them um Mark Aguirre. And then I show yeah. him, obviously, I show him MJ. But, like, yeah. these are the people. And then I show him Sharif. Because Sharif, people don't know that. Sharif Abdul-Rahim was my favorite player. Bro. That's why I wore number three and everything. He was my favorite. I, I went and saw him play when he was at Cal. They played U University of Illinois, United Center. And I got to see him play. Sharif was yeah. it for me. These are the dudes when I'm sitting there and I'm going on YouTube with my little dudes. I'm trying to show them now. I'm a big believer that, um, you know, the, the way I kind of and why I went to University of Kentucky was because of Rick Pitino, because he was the one that really taught the game from the perspective of it's not a position. You're a basketball player. Mm -hmm. You should be comfortable in every aspect of the game. And that's how I looked at it. You should be able to handle this should not be a place on the court where I throw you the ball where you can't operate. Right. You know, in this today's game, it's about versatility at the end yeah. of the day. And I think yeah. that's how basketball should have been played, which should be positionless. Because when I go, when I was younger and played pickup, it wasn't nobody talking about right, it. Right, you know, four or five. Yeah. 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 Maybe height, yeah. maybe height. That's yeah. it. But like, yeah. if they yeah. see you got a big man over there, be like, oh, shit, let me get big dude because I need yeah. somebody yeah. to go at the big dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's changed, you know. And I yeah. actually like the way basketball is played now. It's a lot more freedom for skill and different things like that. I was much more into the skill part of it. But I played yeah. the era also where, you know, it was jail basketball too. You know what I mean? Yeah. The '80s. You know what I mean? You had to jump off two feet and what? No yeah. one could jump off one. You might yeah. not. You might not yeah. be yeah. right. Yeah. You got to protect your landing now. You gotta, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. and, and it was a seven footer there every time you got there. Every time you got to the rim, it was somebody seven. And the four man sixteen six eleven. <laughs> At yeah. average, like 16, 6, 11, power four, seven, some center. That was how it went. Two One, big boys out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I was going through it, you couldn't cross the lane without getting hit. Yeah. They didn't allow you to cross that lane. Check, like, you uh, got to yeah. check you all through. Yeah, and uh, shoot, if you was a guard going across screen for a four, you was going to get hammered. Take me back to Harlem. You grew up by Rucker Park. Like, what was that like for you? When was the first time you remember going to Rucker Park and hooping? Growing up in in uh, in Harlem in Rucker Park, Rucker Park has always been like a um, the mecca of basketball, at least in in Harlem. You know, so I grew up watching Rucker basketball when they had it was called a pro am that was mm -hmm. out there. So I was like maybe 11, 12 years old watching guys play, guys that were pros or or about to be a pro mm. or played overseas. Then I would play after everything was gone, you know what I mean? Where the, where the lights would come on and stuff like that and all the, the people watching. So I would play after that. Then Rucker Park changed to Entertainers Basketball Classic. And uh, yeah, so, uh, and that was a whole nother element, you know, you had, uh, and, and before that, you had a lot of drug dealers that ran those particular programs mm. that would, 
you know, take care of guys from here and there to get them to play on their team. Most and cities. Yeah. Like most cities. There you go. So, so, and, and that, that was fun. And, they, and if you won a championship, they take you to Vegas and all these different things. So he had a lot of fun, but my experience at Rucker Park has always been, you know, I think when I came back from college, a lot of people didn't want me to go to University of Kentucky. They wanted me to stay in the Big East and go to Syracuse or St. John's and everything like that. But I wanted to choose a different path. Coach Patino, he just got fired from the Knicks and took the head coaching job at the University of Kentucky. And he came in and I was like, hey, man, I've been highly recruited. I played for the Gauchos and um, I always played up. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I was a gaucho. So I was the kid that was mm-hmm. always the youngest kid playing with the old the older kids. Yeah, that's yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. So back in the day, they had nineteen and under. I was sixteen playing nineteen and under. You know, fifteen mm-hmm. playing seventeen and under. So I watched how people were being recruited, and I'm like, "How are you guys making a decision on what school you go to?" Some cats are like, "Well, how much they paying me? We gonna be on TV?" <laughs> you know. Then I went to Coach Patino. What made me kind of look at him differently was when I was in Harlem, he would come to my house and actually talk to me. And I said to him, I don't just want to be a basketball player. I want to carry a briefcase. Yeah. And he was the first coach that sat in my living room and didn't laugh at me and took me serious. And to him, I said, yo, if I'm a four-year player, I'm a four-year player, but if I'm a guy that can turn pro, you know, you got to let me go. So that was my agreement with him. So he could have been the coach in Alaska or wherever University of Miami, it didn't matter. It was just honesty. And going back to Rucker Park, that taught me a whole lot about how do you trust people? You know, when you grow up in neighborhoods, you got to, people got to prove their trust. And that's what I learned by watching a lot of these players at Rucker of not making great decisions. You know right. what I mean? And um, so I wanted to do the opposite. So I learned a lot about basketball, but I learned a lot more about life playing at Rucker Park. And when I was in college, a lot of people wanted me to stay in New York City and they didn't know what I was doing at the University of Kentucky because I signed at the University of Kentucky and we couldn't be on TV or go to the NCAA tournament my first year. Mm. So people kind of lost track of me a little bit and I came back to Rucker Park and I think I scored like, 40 points or something like that. And I stopped playing. And the reason I stopped playing, because as you know, both of you guys know, in certain neighborhoods, when you get too good at something, people want to start to hurt you. You know what I mean? So, you know, they get jealous of certain things and they want to play you one-on-one. They got these big bets and stuff like that to play one-on-one. I used to tell people, like when I used to play in the projects, I used to tone down my game to keep the game going, keep the game close, to keep... You know, the violent guys around me happy, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. there won't be no beef or no fighting or they, they have hope of winning. Correct. You know what I'm saying? So people don't understand that. People don't understand that. <laughs> I used to do the same. And um, the reason why I used to do the same is my dad and another friend of mine said something to me interesting one day. It was like, you know what? You can't beat your sparring partners up because you got to have somebody to spar with. So keep the game going so you can work on your stuff. You know what I mean? Work on your game. Yeah. So that's how I started to ball handle and stuff like that. When guys wanted me to play center, I play point guard because I'm working on things. You know what I mean? Yeah. For me, I was always the guy that toned it down so I can get more reps. 
yeah. you know, for reps and work on things. So, you know, it's glad to hear that that you did that as well for a lot of different reasons, but we did them for the same reasons, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When I got to that point, I stopped playing in them type of games, period. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. like you said, it wasn't going to be cool and I ain't want no issues and, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a hooper. We're going to yep. hoop. Yep. Let's go hoop, man. And you know, then you start to realize as you get better and better of understanding how to play. Yeah. You know what I mean? Of not getting somebody hurt. You know what I mean? That's why I didn't like training camp that much when I was in the pros. It's like I, you know, or exhibition games because a lot of guys were coming in there, you know, because they trying to win jobs, but they also yeah. trying to hurt you as well. Like, man, yeah. we ain't all trying to get hurt, man. We just trying to, <laughs> you know, we trying to play, man, and, and get and stay in this thing for a long time. We ain't trying to come out here with no injuries. So right, right. So you start to realize how to play, you know, create distance and different things like that. Challenge just a little yeah. bit, you know. Now this this Kentucky show, like a lot of these guys that's going to Kentucky, especially in them 90s, the reason they went to Kentucky is because of all mass burn, right? The lineup of guys that came after you, the guys that came after them, just to see the program, you see the legacy of it, all the players that they got. Man, the NBA is full of them. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it all started with Jamal Mansburg, but a lot of cats don't know that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So for me, it was um, nobody knew about Kentucky basketball. I didn't know anything about the tradition of Kentucky basketball. Uh, I grew up in New York City, and the only thing we got was Big East basketball at that time and a little bit of the ACC and mostly yeah. North Carolina, or Georgia Tech or something like that. Yeah. So I had no idea what Kentucky basketball meant to the state of Kentucky. I saw it as a an opportunity to start as a freshman. That's how I looked at it, you know? Yeah. And I saw a guy who was a professional coach for the New York Knicks. And if I wanted to be a professional, I thought I should be coached by somebody who coached in the pros. Yeah. So I saw opportunity and they were like, well, we can't make the NCAA tournament my, our first year because we're on probation. I'm like, it's all good. I'm trying to get to, to be a professional basketball player. That was my right. goal. And right. I felt like if I was going to be a professional basketball player and I can get as good as I can get and fulfill my potential, we're going to be in an NCAA tournament, you know? Mm -hmm. So I looked at it as just opportunity. And then when things started to Momentum started to pick up after that um, Christian Leitner shot that we lost to in, in the Spectrum. And yeah. people consider that as one of the best games in college basketball history. That's right, when it started to snowball, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the following year, my junior year, we went to the Final Four and lost to the Fat Five and um, in New Orleans. So for me, it was like a launching pad for me to see how good I can get. And it was all because I wanted to be a professional basketball player, you know? And I looked at it just as an opportunity. I didn't look at it as, you know, I want to go to North Carolina or play for that tradition. No, I looked at it as, oh, I can go here and get minutes early and, and fulfill my dream. So it just happened to be, and then he started to recruit guys like Antoine Walker, Walter McCarty, and all those guys. And then it started to snowball yeah. from there. Hit us too. Take me back to that, both of those runs. First when, you know, like you said, when Christian Leitner, because, I, like everybody else, hated Christian Layden was so mad <laughs> that he made that damn shot. <laughs> hated dude. And like you already know, we all was a was Mashburn fans anyway. So it was like, <sighs> but just take me back for you, like going through that, like, you know what I'm saying? Y'all making this big run in the tournament and it ended like that in that fashion. Like you said, one of the best games ever played. Just take me back to being in that moment. Yes. So that moment was 
you probably realize this. You guys probably realize this. And I hope some of your listeners, or we can enlighten them. Duke basketball at that time was comparable to Chicago Bulls, the way they travel, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and the fanfare behind them. They were almost like the, the darlings of the. They was in every store. You can buy everything, their gear everywhere. <laughs> everything, everything. And also a good friend of mine, we grew up together on the circuit was Grant Hill. So I knew Grant since he was, since I was 13 years old and um, mm-hmm. we played against each other in AAU basketball. So we already had a relationship. And then also Bobby Hurley's from Jersey. Right. So Bobby Hurley played against, you know, he was with the club called the road runners out of Jersey and I played road for the Shows. Yeah. yeah. So we, we played against so we, both of them. We used to, yeah. <laughs> Al, Al Harrington played for the road runners. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. There you go. So that was a big Jersey club. And also he went to St. Anthony's as well. And we played against them in high school. So I knew some of those guys, but didn't know Christian Leitner at all. And just to go back to that moment, nobody really believed in Kentucky basketball because we were coming off probation. And Mm -hmm. when you looked at the lineup, my name was the only one that stood out. Nobody Mm -hmm. knew who the other players were. So we were completely underdogs. So our mentality was, yo, let's go hoop. You know, let's go play. You know, and one thing I will say about Coach Patino, at least when he coached me, you can do whatever you want to do on the offensive end as long as you don't shoot a three-point shot with your foot on that line. He will <laughs> take your ass out if you your line if you worst shot in basketball. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make or miss, he taking your ass out. And I remember in that game, and you guys know how you get into a zone as an individual, but I remember the collective was in the zone. You know, it was like a, one of those pickup games that that could last forever. Mm. That's what that game felt like. It was like mm. the coaches took a step back. Good and basketball. Just play. And um, Coach Patino didn't make a lot of adjustments. Mike Krzyzewski didn't make a lot of adjustments, even though they did some in-game stuff. But for the most part, they let the players play. And I tell people it was a one of the best organized pickup games with uniforms on that I ever played in, you know, because that's what it felt like. And I think that's what we all live for. We would play free if all the games were like that, you know, like that, get that feeling. Yeah. So it was like, everybody was in the zone. And I remember after the game we had lost and coach Patino comes into the locker room and he had this uh, sports illustrated article that said Kentucky shame. And it was talking about Kentucky going on probation. And he made the comment, look how far we have come. And I was thinking about leaving school early my sophomore year to turn pro. I came back. I came back because I had the opportunity to go play against the first dream team in 1992. Mm. And playing against the first dream team before my junior year, Coach Patino called me and he was like, wait one more year. You're going to be a top four pick because you play really well out there. So for me, that 1992 Duke-Kentucky game was actually the lead-in to play against the first dream team that skyrocketed me to turning pro. Mm-hmm. So that game has a lot of significance for me rather than just the score of wins and losses. How was that to play against the dream yeah, team? This is, like dream team. <laughs> this is like the legends are all legends. Bosses are all bosses. But bro. this is the game that, correct me if I'm wrong, where y'all came in and tuned the dream team up, right? This yeah, we was beat, the legendary yeah. game where the college guys came in and Chuck Daly let y'all tear their ass up. And as soon as y'all started getting back, he ended it, right? 
So yeah, so funny. So so a lot of people talk. Hey man, about, I know my history. Man. I know my history. I'm yeah. like, look, very good memory, very good memory. So we were in 1992. Well, let me take it back. 1990, 89, 87. A lot of guys weren't talking about going pros like you did, D Miles, out of high school. What happening? What happened? The Most- phenom over here. Get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. And it wasn't even a thought for some guys. Yeah. It was more or less, let me get to college and I want to play in the Olympics. They weren't doing one and duns either, for real. Nah, it was three and duns. At yeah. best, two and duns. You know what yeah. I mean? And um, so, when we got an invitation, it was eight of us. It was myself, Bobby Hurley, Alan Houston, uh, Chris Weber, Rodney Rogers, Eric Montrose. Shout out Hardy. Rodney Rogers, man. Yeah. Shout out the OG. Yeah. And, um, and Grant Hill was on that squad. So Roy Williams was our head coach. And so they shot us a bone and said, come out to La Jolla, San Diego, and be a part of the select team that practices against the, the dream team. So I was like, all right, let's go out there. So we get to La Jolla, San Diego, and we check into the Marriott, and they had the hotel split in half from the Olympic team and the select team stayed on one side of the hotel, and they had a security guard at the door. So you had to show your key. So me and Chris Weber, we're in a, we go up to our floor, and we're walking in the corridor, and we see this tall white guy coming down the hall. And I'm like, damn, that looked like Larry Bird. So Larry Bird coming down the hallway, me and Chris Webber and Larry Bird, you don't realize how big Larry Bird is until you stand yeah, up close yeah, to Larry yeah, Bird. Exactly. As a yeah, La- man. Larry Bird, legit 6'10". Nah, real talk. Yeah, when yeah, I first yeah, stood up against him when he was coaching talk. the pace, yeah. I was like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know yeah. Bird was that yeah. big either. I was like, Bird, Bird up. fucking folks yeah. up. <laughs> so he, he walked by us and he says, y'all those college guys? And we was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we the college guys. And he looked at us and he said, Get some fucking rest. It's going to be a long week. And walked off. And we was like, what the hell? Larry- <laughs> Which out of got us in? Yeah, I'm like, okay. You know, we're like, all right, what's going on here? I wanted to say what's up. And he just came <laughs> me like this, like this. Uh, yeah. This is in the hallway. Right. Yeah. All right, okay, cool. So me and Chris Webber, and I'm roommates with Bobby Hurley. He ain't think nothing of it. And so that we just excited. We're like, oh, he's just talking shit or whatever. But that's kind of cool, though. That's Larry Bird. Right, you, know? Right. <laughs> you know, he know who we are. But he ain't call us by Chris Webber and Jamal Matthews. Like, y'all them college kids. So the <laughs> next morning, we get up and we go to um, practice. And Roy Williams is our coach. But we only got eight. So we're like, well, how are we practicing? And what are we practicing for? So we spent, I want to say, an hour doing the three-man weave. And I'm like, what's going on here? Then they bust us to another location where the dream team is practicing. And these about 400 people standing outside uh, waiting for the dream team to come out. They take us up to a top floor and the dream team is practicing. They're finishing up their practice. And then they say, all right, get loose and stretch out. We're like, okay, we playing? They're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to play next. So we already kind of like feel a certain way. You <laughs> like, 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 like this some bullshit. Bullshit. So it's the starting five, I think, is myself, Chris Weber, Rodney Rogers, Bobby Hurley, and Alan Houston. And no, Penny Hardaway started too. I forgot who the, the five was. So we get out the gates. Like the first 15 minutes, we kicking their ass. <laughs> we but we running them. 
all that Bobby Hurley in the lane, killing John Stockton. So they stopped the game and turn off the score. I think we were up like 72, 66 or something, 64, something like that. They just stopped the game. So we like, all right, was this halftime or some shit? They like, nah, the press coming in. So I'm like, oh, wow. So that's when the thing came out that Chuck Daly let us win because they didn't want to hold a complete game because they knew it was going to be downhill from there because we were trying to prove that we could represent the country. Right. We ain't need the dream team, you know what I mean? Yeah, I ain't like, it was supposed team. to be the college players, but they brought in, the, brought in the big boys and took Correct. over the college spot. I remember Correct. that. So we we um, lit their ass up, and then something happened. We're sitting there, and we get back to the hotel. Rodney Rogers says something to, it's a group of them. It's Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and everybody's shooting the shit. And Rodney Rogers said, hey, Larry, you ain't hit a jumper since 84. Magic heard that shit. And we ain't think none of it. The next day we came in and I'd never seen this. And this one, I was like, this is a different breed. Magic Johnson fed Larry Bird the ball probably about eight times in a row down court. Larry Bird got the ball on Rodney Rogers. And every time he was about to make a move, he told him what he was going to do. (laughs) <laughs> one dribble pull up going left off glass <laughs> one dribble going right spin shot bucket he scored nine times or eight times in a row <laughs> left the court to go lay down because he couldn't sit on a bench he had to lay down because yeah, of his back. back I remember that his back was messed and up and said young fella Look like 84, huh? <laughs> Last time he met <laughs> So I'm sitting there and I'm like, wow. I said, so that they kicked our ass for the rest of the week. And um <laughs> said the rest of the rest week, guys. They ain't play nah, with us. Nah, they ain't play with us the rest of the week. And we also got a chance to hang with them off the court and started to realize what the NBA lifestyle and Michael Jordan staying up to five in the morning. That dude would stay up to five in the morning, play cards, go play golf, practice, then go back and play golf again. And it's like that man never got tired. But the significance of that to me was that now I knew I could play in the pros. You know, it was that extra boost, like, okay, you know what? I can do this. Yeah, you see, and, you can level out your game, see where your game yeah, is. And see where it fit in at, you know yeah. what I mean? And see how much I had to work on. So to me, that was the catalyst for me turning pro and after i came out of that they were like you're going to be no less than the fourth pick overall and chris weber went first i believe and uh, he really dominated up there too you know what i mean and um that's when i said and noticed how much of a difference michael jordan as a player was to all those hall of famers he was everybody yeah it, it looked like when when you watch them play and they scrimmage amongst themselves it looked like if you didn't know anything about the game, you said, hey, yo, that bald black dude, he the best player. And he made them look like they were high school players and he was in the pros. That's That was the that's gap. Crazy. That's insane. That was that's, that's, that's not saying MJ practicing with his team, the Bulls. He's practicing with the other 12 or 13, 11, how many best players supposedly in the world. Correct. Minus, you know, I mean, Isaiah wasn't there, so yeah. minus him, but like, 
the other best guys in the world, he making look like high school players. That's what you seeing from looking courtside. He got them looking that average, and then he looking that great. He looking that great, and that's when I realized that the second best player was Charles Barkley, and I watched him go at Carl Malone, and I, I was like, wow. I call Malone, big dude. Charles Barkley was just throwing him out of the way and was fierce. And that's why I said, Charles Barkley, if you took Michael Jordan out of the conversation, he would have been the cream of the crop. And and how physical he was, just he can do it all, talk shit, did it all. And then when he got off the court, what was interesting about him was I could actually see back then of how well he would do on TNT now because Everybody wanted to approach Magic Johnson and and Michael Jordan, but the player that had the most reporters around him was Charles Barkley because he would Mm. hold court. You know what I mean? He would, would, you know, you know, give him what they wanted, be funny and talk about different things. So you can see where he was going to be commentating at the end of his career, not necessarily commentating, but be a much more in the public eye. Media. When you was coming up, who was them guys that you watched and you was like, man, I want my game to be like his. I want to be like, that person or that person that you seen, like, man, I got to take a couple of them moves yeah. <laughs> above him. <laughs> First person I saw in high school that I came back home and was like, yo, y'all got to check this guy out. It was two players. It was uh, Penny Hardaway and um, Ed O'Bannon. Ooh, Ed O'Bannon was hard Ooh, in UCLA. Yeah, yeah, about Ed O'Bannon boys. Ed O'Bannon was the truth back yeah. in high school. And him, um, who else I saw? Um, Jimmy Jackson, when I saw him in person. Jim Jackson. Jim Jackson. Jim Jackson. Jim Jackson. Jim Jackson was solid. Yeah, yeah. He he was a, a beast. Um, I'm trying to – the other guy that I became good friends, and you mentioned earlier, a shout-out to him, was Rodney Rogers. When I first yeah. saw him, he reminded me – a lot of people don't realize, to me, he was a Zion Williamson back there with a jump yeah, shot. Yeah, exactly. with a jump shot. He could shoot. Yeah. He yeah. shoot. Yeah. yeah, so when they talk this stuff, like, we've never seen – a player like this, I'm like, y'all haven't really watched Rodney Rogers. Go look yeah. at the highlights. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Rodney, those guys, when I came back from uh, Nike camp, it was like, wow, I got to put some work in. But as far as a pro player, my guys were, I did a little differently. Uh, it might be the same for you guys is I took bits and pieces of pro players and kind of said, you know, I want the footwork and the post up of Akeem Olajuwon. Yeah. I want the shooting of Larry Bird. I want the vision of Magic Johnson. You know, I want the handles of Isaiah Thomas. So, and then I made a collective. So that's how I kind of approached it. Yeah, that's how I was too. I was trying to take a move off somebody and add it to my game. Like I got the jab step off the triple threat. I got that from you and Alonzo Mourning. <laughs> yeah. If I jab on you, if you move an inch over, yeah. I'm gone. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hard jab left. I'm going hard right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stop that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so no, nah, I picked it up in a lot of ways like that. And I watched a lot of guards growing up. And I, I like to handle the ball. That was my thing. I wanted to be a ball handler. And truth be told, I wanted to always be a point guard, more of a combo guard. Yeah. That's the New York Anna. Yeah, That's the yeah, New yeah. York Anna. Yeah. 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 Speaking of like the draft, you know, we all had that moment in the draft where, uh, you know, our families get to enjoy it. You know what I'm saying? It's just our dream come true. It's just one of them nights. How was the draft for you and your family when you got drafted? You know, great question. It's the first time anybody ever asked me that. So, yeah, I appreciate that. So, for me, I was leaving from the University of Kentucky. I had rented a house there. So, 
I'm from New York, but I had my family fly up to Kentucky. And for that particular draft in 1993, it was the first time they ever moved the draft and they moved it to Detroit, Michigan. Mm. And they usually held it in New York. So I actually took a, a like a, a chartered bus, rented out a whole bus, a luxury bus, and we drove up there. It was probably about a five or six hour drive. It was a, a lot of tequila later and drinks and all that stuff. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the nice tequila. The, party, the proverbial party <laughs> yeah. bus on the way. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So we had a good time going up there. And, you know, what's interesting was, I don't know how you guys got drafted, but I pretty much knew where I was going. You know, I, I pretty much knew. They were like, you're going to to the Dallas Mavericks. So the anticipation was over for me the day before the draft because I knew where I was going to get selected. Ah, you were blessed. Yeah, I was blessed. And then fortunate for me too, you know, I had already signed a FILA contract. So I already had money in my pocket. And Mm. a part of my contract, they, we negotiated that regardless of where he gets drafted, you're going to, and before he steps on the court, as soon as he signs his contract, you got to pay him. You know, mm-hmm. so I use that as you leverage. You gotta get no leverage, no loans, and all correct, that. Correct, correct. Instantly, I correct, got you. I correct, see where you're going. Correct, correct. So I had leverage. So when they said that Dallas Mavericks, I was a little disappointed originally because um, I thought I had a chance to uh, go to the Orlando Magic, and they flip flop picks between um, who was it, Chris Webber and Penny Hardaway. Golden State and Orlando. Right. So I remember going through the draft process of only going to see four teams. That was Golden State, Orlando, Dallas, and Philadelphia. And I remember going to Philadelphia and sitting in front of uh, the general manager at the time, Jimmy Lynham, I think his name was. Mm-hmm. And phone rings, and um, he picks up the phone in his office while he's having a meeting with me, and all he can talk about is how good Sean Bradley is. And I'm sitting in the meeting with him. And he hangs up the phone. He starts talking to me a little bit more. And he says, all right, you want to go work out? I was like, I'm not working out for you. And he was like, what you mean? I said, y'all going to drive Sean Bradley. Why am I wasting my time? So I said, right. you drive me to the airport. We could be all good. So he wanted to drive me to the airport. And uh, no more Philadelphia. Mm. You know? So you're saying if it wasn't for the swap, or maybe, I don't know how that went down. Because, you know, sometimes they pick players for other teams. Yeah. 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 And that's what I think happened with Orlando picking Penny. So if it wasn't for that situation, you could have been yeah. number two overall to Orlando and history a little bit different, huh? A little bit different because I went to my workout in Orlando. And at the time, the head coach was Matty Gukas. Mm-hmm. And um, he had gotten fired right before the draft or something like that. So for me, when I went into the draft process, it was different back then. You basically shoot some shots. And they got into my wheelhouse of playing one-on-one. So I play one-on-one and I'm a one-on-one player. You know what I mean? That's my thing. You know what I mean? So one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, I'm I'm going, I'm going to do what I do. You're going to look good in that. (laughs) (laughs) So that's where I thought I had an advantage, but they, they, they made the right selection with Penny Hardaway. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, he's. Yeah, they fit well together. Yeah. And I, I met Penny before he had a, a bullet in his foot and he was right. jumping up. <laughs> I mean, Penny was a beast in high school with whatever yeah. they saw in the pros. Penny Hardaway, they pull out. He was doing tape. that in high school. Yeah, he was, he was a monster. How was it when you got to walk across that stage and shake David Stern's hand, you know, like. 
like all of us, that's our dream. And like not everybody that gets to the league has a chance to have that opportunity to go, you know, to be in the green room and and have that moment. How was that for you? Because for a lot of us, it's like, you know, that's a signature moment of where our life is changing for the better for the rest of our lives. Like that's a moment. How was that for you? I always watched the draft as a kid. You know what I mean? Exactly. And watch the people put on the hat and everything like that. Yep. And um, I still got the hat to this day, Dallas Mavericks, a green Dallas Maverick hat. So for me, it was an honor to shake David Stern's hand. Yes. And um, years later, he actually became a good friend before he passed. You know what I mean? He was a champion for me to be in ownership, you know, and we actually looked at deals together and I had an opportunity to be a part of the process to buy the Pelicans. I tell people I came in second, which is last, and the Benson family got it. And David Stern was the person that championed me for it. Hey, Jamal, you need to look at this. So David was cool to me. David, cell phone number, call me anytime. So it was an honor for me. The only thing I didn't like was that they didn't tell me was when you get drafted, you're not going to see your family for a couple hours because you got right, to go. You got to go. Yeah, that's the one. We got to take a whole photo shoot after. Cars, they got to talk to different media, yeah. talk to your team. That's why they'll show you that part of the, the stadium before hey, that. that first like, pick, get picked, and then you like, think he off kicking <laughs> it the whole, the second <laughs> round be going on. He's still in the back going around the ring and doing Correct. stuff. <laughs> Correct. So that, I, I was like, what's this? Nobody alerted me to that. So I didn't, I didn't get back out. So my family had to sit there until probably damn near the middle of the second round for me to come back out and then had to leave at 7 a.m. on that first flight out to get to the city. So you never really got a chance to experience it the way people think you experience it because then it turns into business. Yeah, right away, right away. So that was the telltale sign for me was, man, I knew I was in the business, but now it's more than just playing basketball. Tell me this. I saw a thing where you were saying, like, when you were deciding to end it, you called David Stern and you wanted to meet with him, like, because you said you shook your hand with him on the way in. You want to do that on the way out. Like, what made you, because, I mean, I don't know anybody else that I've talked to or heard of that said they wanted to do that. What made you want to be that type of person that wanted to go out before you retired? And, I mean, obviously, it's part of the relationship you, you know, um, developed with him. But tell me about how that went down. Yeah, so what's interesting is... um I didn't have a great relationship with the league. And, you know, we can speak candidly here. You know, a lot of it is politics, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. how you get promoted and different things like that. There are certain people in certain spots for different reasons. And yeah. a lot of it is based on marketing. So my first mistake that I made entering into the league was I didn't go to the rookie transition program. You know, oh. I felt like I didn't need it, you know, yeah. because um, I just thought that, I had started my layer of getting into business right when I wanted to carry that briefcase. So I actually went to the rookie transition program my second year. And I started off a little bit shaky with the league at that particular time. And, right. and, oh, yeah, because they don't play about that shit. They be like, hey, if you don't go, <laughs> 10, until you don't you go, the consequences is high on your ass. You show up, 10 racks every year, but you know the legend. Correct. The legend was that, hey, I just got Godfather because he never came. Yeah. It's just like, fuck it. We're going to stop sending the 10,000 that man that many times. Just forget it. You ain't coming. ain't never coming. Yeah, so I didn't show up, and I showed up my second year, and I only showed up for a day. I was like, I, I really don't need this. Oh, you really win games. <laughs> yeah. So, Even so, when he showed up, he came one day in peace. <laughs> yeah, I'm out. You know, um, my relationship with the league was a little shaky because also I didn't, I wasn't the type of guy that liked to do interviews. You know what I mean? It was like, 
And plus, we had just we only won 13 games my first year. I was being coached by a coach who didn't have a lot of history in coaching and Quinn Buckner, you know, so the whole situation was just like messed up. And me and Jimmy Jackson, we were together in Dallas my first year and he um, there was no veteran leadership around. It was, yeah. There was nobody to sit and say, hey, guys. You- y'all policing y'all? Yeah, like yeah. us when we first got to leave. We <laughs> like us. That's how we were. We policing our own. Be strong, though. They, hey. Yeah, it didn't look good. It didn't look good. So, you know, we found, you know, trial by error, you know, and also trial by fire. So I didn't do a lot of the league stuff. So one day I'm about to retire. And uh, I actually tell people I retired before I announced. I remember my last game was in Toronto. Uh, the Toronto Raptors. And I remember saying to myself, this is it. You know, I just, I can no longer, I had to do so much exercise and warming up for like 60 minutes. They don't know about them knees. (laughs) When them knees is done, you like an old school car. You got to go outside, cut that joint on, let it run about 45 minutes. And then we put it on. And then you still don't know how you going to feel. Yeah, you don't know if it's still gonna make it to the destination. Like, you know? be scared as hell on that highway. I, I, I felt that because, like, with with them needs to be like, man, my mind can't control my Correct. body. Correct. That's what. That's the kind of feeling that I was getting from. Like, my mind can't control my Correct. body. Things that I used to tip, my mind used to tell me to do. It's just like my knees won't let yeah, me do it. So I had to warm up and do exercises for an hour, and I'm only playing thirty minutes a night. Yeah. So, and that was not just for games. That was for practice. You know what yeah. I mean? And and so I just couldn't do it no more. So I was heavy into my business career at that particular time. And I just thought that if I shook his hand on entry, I should shake his hand on exit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I called the league up and um, called David's office up. And uh, actually, the lady that got the meeting for me was Krista Chin. Krista. Krista Chin. My NBA. Shout that's out to That's one of our NBA moms. Yeah, NBA still mom. our moms to yeah, so I, And to <laughs> this day, me and Krista Leah. still talk. Yeah. So yeah. All of us. All of us. Always Krista get the text message from Krista. And Leah Wilcox, a.k.a. Millie's mom. Yeah, them the ones right yep. there. Them the ones. Still to this day. Yep. So Leah Wilcox and Krista Chin were a part of that. And I've known Leah since high school. So Leah worked at NBA Entertainment in Secaucus, New Jersey. Yes, she's mm. one of the real OGs. Yeah, yeah. so she knew me because I played with one of her cousins at Cardinal Hayes. And so she knew me at a, at a young age. And so she always used to hit me to certain stuff. Hey, Jamal, you might need to do this one. That's mm-hmm. what she's doing for yeah. us That's right now to this right day. Now. Yeah. She's the right best. Now. She's still yeah. to this day doing yeah. that for everybody around the league, but I just can Correct. speak for us in particular. She always call and grab us by the neck and say, hey, 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 this is what's this. And, and, Correct. and she, it's always what it is, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she's in the know. She know, yep. you know. And um, so she was like, you know, I think you may want to share a lot of the business stuff that you're doing with David Stern as you're exiting. And then I, my response to Leah was, I don't need their help. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she was like, Jamal, trust me, trust look, me. Look, look, Jamal, yeah. Jamal, I know she's doing it in her New York <laughs> yeah. accent. <laughs> yeah, just trust me, just trust me. So she set up the meeting and uh, the deputy commissioner at the time was Russ Granite. Russ became a good friend too. And and uh, he, um, I said to David, I was like, hey, you know what? Thank you for my time here. You know, um, I'm retiring. And uh, he was like, well, share some of the stuff that you, you're going to be doing. I was like, uh, this is some of the stuff that I'm already doing. 
And he was like, wow, why didn't you contact us um, before and let us know? And I said to him very candidly, I don't see how y'all can help me. And he was like, what you mean? I said, well, I'm a Toyota dealer for multiple dealers, uh, stores. You guys are a marketing partner of Toyota. So I'm trying to figure out how y'all going to help me when I'm already dealing with the corporation. You know what I mean? Right. Um, y'all are just a sponsor. They're a sponsor of yours. So then David turns to me and, and uh, Russ Granick and he says, well, um, would you like to work for the league? I was like, David, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. And he was like, what you mean? I said, here's what I can do. One day I want to come in here. I want to be a partner. And he was like, what does that mean? I said, I want to be an owner. And David always remembered that. And he would call me up when I'm in New York City or vice versa, come to the office. And he would show me things on Atlanta Hawks, books and different things, things going to be sold. And that's how it all started. So from that particular relationship, it's the same thing that I tell my son, uh, who's 19 years old. Sometimes it's not about as much as how you enter and what you do in there is how you exit as well, that people remember. And um, so for me, that was one of the pillars in my life that I guess showed them that I was about my business rather than just being a guy that just played in the NBA. Talking about knees, knees. Derrick Rose, yeah. you know, you know, like when you, you know, when you have a knee injuries, you see the other guys that go through them knee injuries and them ACLs. Them, I had meniscus too. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the pain that, that other guys go through, but like, uh, just speaking on another guy with knees like Derrick Rose and how he persevering and he's still fighting and he getting out there and still playing on the level that he's playing on. Just speak up on a player like that to yeah. see the fight. Because, you know, it's a fight. Like you say, it's just sometimes you wake up, you be like, man, I'm tired. It's like you having a kid with you all the time because mm-hmm. I got to prep the <laughs> knees <laughs> to do everything that I'm doing. Getting out the bed, that walk to the bathroom is a yeah, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Especially like, if it rains. They don't yeah, know. Oh, yeah, you already know. <laughs> yeah. So for me, um, I, I um, empathize with Derrick Rose in a lot of ways in the reverse way. So Derrick Rose was an MVP and then had knee issues. So that in itself is difficult to deal with. You know what I mean? Where you have to reinvent yourself and you have to really and I tell people you have to really love the game. You can't love the money. You know, you can't love the lifestyle for him. He could have sat down and nobody would have said nothing. You know what I mean? But he continued to. And so I admire his tenacity, his will and his ability to uh, have the self-awareness to modify his game. You know what I mean? Because longevity in the NBA isn't about, you know, how high you can jump. Keeping your athleticism. Yeah. It's how can you manage your decline of athleticism while your skill level goes up? Yeah. IQ go up. Yeah. Play the game more. Yeah. So for me, it was a reverse for me. So I tell people I was one of the first to have microfracture surgery back in 95. Mm-hmm. And they didn't understand what rehab was. They said it was for old folks. Yeah. Say six-year-olds, seven-year-olds get this. Yeah. So for me, I had to figure out, and especially it was early in my career, of how I'm going to stay here for 10 plus years. And that's when I developed that mid-post, that mid-range game and different things like that, because I can no longer just blow by you. I had to kind of do angles and different things like that. And the perseverance it took for me to make an all-star team, because I thought I should have made more than one all-star team. Uh-huh. Um, and I tell, and I'm proud of the fact that I was able to make it on one leg, basically, you know. And when I got to Miami, that's when I first got introduced to anti-inflammatories. 
you know, uh, and those are those Voltaren 100s. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, the little small pill that when you when you take that thing, they take away all. This little small <laughs> pill, but the jug that motherfucker come in yeah. is big as hell. Yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's about it's about three hundred of them in that joint they had. You like, yeah, take these yeah. home with yeah. you. Yeah, so that's when I got introduced to that, and I used to only take them on game day because. I started to see other people that would take them and they had stomach lining issues, you know, yeah. and things like that. So yeah. for me, it was the inflammation and the micro fracture when I couldn't do certain things, but it takes a lot mentally to deal with the knee injury or any injury, you know, yeah. especially when you're playing at a high level and that's your source of income, you know, yeah. and we already have short windows anyway, you know, uh, a small window to make as much as we can. And for me, I've always stated that that's nothing is impossible. Dealing with injuries the way I dealt with them, it truly made me understand that anything you can put your mind to, you can do. do you know, yeah. you're, you're gonna go through some pain. Yeah. You're not gonna. It's not gonna be what it, what you want it to be all the time. But if you persevere long enough and take the right steps, you'll eventually reach your goal. Yeah. I just hate the injuries open my mind to like, man, I could have when I was. A thousand percent <laughs> healthy. I could have went in on some shit yeah. on the weight room. I could have went in crazy. It was like, man, I got injured. It's like, I got to catch back up. You know what I'm saying? Injury, <laughs> what I saw injury, it makes you a veteran real quick. Man, yes, you have to get, your body get old fast. Your body get old. You <laughs> All feel that extra old. shit you used to yeah, do. You, you can't. We, running in the we gym trying to dunk between your we legs. We walked in the door laughing at motherfuckers. Like, you didn't got a heat pack. Like, yeah. what you gonna do? You know what I'm saying? All that. We yeah. come out. Like, he said, we walk straight out. And ain't no stretching out. Oh, I'm windmill yeah. that thing. And then look over there like, your old ass. You know, we came in. He 18. I'm 19. We was straight up yeah. real life. I can remember running up on Pat. You ain't an OG. Salute <laughs> Pat. That's our big bro, OG. Hitting them in the back of the head, like, oh, last man, we gonna dunk on you today. I'm gonna block your shit today or something. Just fucking <laughs> with him, like, you old as shit. Like, just always yeah. talking shit. Then you turn around and it looked like it went like that. And now you got him over I'm talking about up. literally What's two, up, three OG? years later, we in that man, like, oh, young fella, you boy. Yeah, man, now we the OG. Yeah, I remember I first started seeing Ice Pack was a guy I played with, and he was probably Jason Kidd before Jason Kidd. His name was Fat Lever. And Fat Lever, sticky fingers, get them skills. Yeah, still, he get a triple-double in a minute. And um, he had these ice on his knees, and he used to talk to me. He's like, man, you should start icing your knees. I'm like, man, I don't want no damn ice, man. And three years later, ice on my knees, man. Ice it is. Hey, I'm talking hey. about like the ice man on the bench. You got so much packs on you. Speaking of J-Kid, like one of my all-time, I know this dates everybody and all that, one of my all-time threesomes was you, Jim, Jack, and J-Kid, the 3J. Tell me how that was to be rocking out like that. Cause all y'all was relatively young yeah. and a grown up older league. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? How was that to be out there making an impact and doing it how y'all boys was doing it? And explain the tempo change from Derek Harper to Jason Kidd. <laughs> okay. Cause I know the tempo changed when Jason Kidd hopped up that joint. This was on there. Yeah. So, <laughs> Jimmy got drafted in 92. I got drafted in 93. Jason Kidd got drafted in 94. He That's was three in great draft drafts class. in the row. Yeah, but <laughs> well, shit, you losing that time. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, it, it, it means two things. Two things are happening. They pretty bad. Yeah. But upstairs, they making some pretty good selections, even yeah. though they bad. You know, yeah. it's selection squandered in those situations. Yeah. So they, did yeah. good. they did well. They did well, but um, I would. The difference was when Jay Kid got to the team. I was a small forward. Jimmy was the two. 
and Derek Harper was the one. Derek Harper really wanted to get out of Dallas because he wanted to play in the playoffs, and he got shipped to uh, the Knicks. Got shipped to the Knicks and uh, played guard for them. Jay Kidd comes in. The first thing you knew right away was in uh, training camp. That dude should always have a ball. <laughs> and, and you guys should just hit the wing and run. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and I would tell people when we practice, you probably want to get a ticket to practice to watch Jay Kidd and all of us play. Because I remember Jay Kidd making passes in practice, hitting people in the back of the head. They just wasn't ready. And <laughs> Jay Kidd used to run from end to end. He was one of the fastest guards at 6'4", 205 pounds, yeah. and coming down at you and had this little crossover dribble at full speed. Full it speed. Listen. Right yeah. on. Full speed. Full uh, speed. Yeah, I got that from him, too. <laughs> full speed. And the one thing we used to clown Jason about was, I remember Jason would probably have more career triple doubles than he had because he would his stat line would be like six points. points, 15 assists, 16 boards. I'm like, dude, you can't get these two points, yo. Right. Like, like, <laughs> come on. We, like, really? But I would say Jay Kidd is probably one of my favorite teammates. And me and Jay Kidd had this thing where we would play. And all the point guards that I played with, I used to be like, man, hey, if I'm running up and down this court two or three trips, man, I ain't touched that rock. You got to feed me something. You know? <laughs> and J.K. used to he used to look at me. I got you, Mash. I got you. I'm like, well, what's going on? What's up? And um, he used to give us the ball and stuff like that. But the real guy, in my opinion, and people don't remember him, that made up that foursome was Papa Jones. Popeye. <laughs> yeah, Popeye. Yeah. He's, you don't get the love the for that. Yeah, yeah, Popeye, you be out there doing yeah. the dirty work, man. Yeah. So that that group right there, I regret that we didn't stay together longer. And me and Jimmy, we talk about it on occasion when I speak to him because that, that threesome right there could have been something special. Um, but there was some off-court stuff there that really had nothing to do with Tony Braxton at that particular time. Even though that's the exactly, look, you know how to meet. I remember the, you know I remember media, the rumor man. like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah ain't nobody. They weren't fighting over her. You know what I mean? Um, so um, it had to do with some other stuff. They finally buried the hatchet or whatever. And then Jay Kidd got shipped to um, Phoenix. Phoenix for uh, Sam Cassell and Michael Finley. Yeah, and, and I, that was the first time you got a fifty burger in the league, man. Rolling with Jay Kidd, ain't it? I say, I know you feeling good hooping with him, huh? You know what's funny about that was in Chicago, actually. Yeah. Ooh, on the that's when you said you get Scotty. Yeah, Scotty. yeah, yeah. And funny thing about that fifty point game is, uh, you know, we hung out to six in the morning the night before. And so, see, man, listen. Let me just say, this is the part that a lot of people don't understand because I used to like me. I don't want to talk crazy, but me and my dog right here, we was prolific <laughs> and still showing up the next day and tearing somebody ass and up like we been sleep all running. day and night. Yeah. Like we need <laughs> all the rest and everything. Like, Sometimes we used to come in there smelling like a brewery. Listen, I'm going to tell you the truth. We, we I would not it. suggest, <laughs> would not tell. I wouldn't even tutor nobody to do none of this. But all I'm yeah. saying is that it can be done. It is absolutely not for everybody. No, because I didn't have we, me and him, to have people with us, and they don't look the same way we look yeah. the next day. Yeah. And at a certain point, even if it was for you, it ain't gonna be for your ass no more. Right. At some point, you just gotta be not real. You gotta be not aware. You gotta realize all them things. But I'm right. telling you, when me and this boy first stepped in the league, eighteen, I'm like, man, we could go out to four five in the morning. Yeah. We can eat McDonald's 
all the time. 24 yeah. minutes before the game start. Yeah. And go out there and tear somebody ass apart like ain't none of that happened. That's how it was, you know what I mean? Especially when you found, what, what I found out when I got in the league is, especially if you're on a losing team, Ain't nobody going out. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a whole lot is going out. Well, we, we talking about it by the beginning of the fourth. We talking about so yeah, What we going to yeah, eat? Yeah, yeah. We, we, What's the date? Yeah. What spot open yeah, after this? Yeah, because when we got into that third quarter, game was over. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. so everybody was going out. So we hung out to 6 in the morning. And how that 50-point game came man, out. Man, down on Rush Street, man, doing the real thing in Chicago. He was hanging out. He was hanging out. He was hanging out. And... I came into halftime with like 27 and Jimmy Jackson comes up to me and Dick Motta was the coach and Dick Motta, one of the coolest people you would ever meet. And one of the great offensive minds, he was like 33 to 50. He ain't care nothing about winning the game. 33 to 50. That's I, was like, I was like, 33. I said, you got the wrong numbers. He was like, Oh no, just get 50. I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. And he promoted <laughs> it. He was just like, let's go. And Dick Motta, Dick Motta was like, go get that bucket. You know what I mean? And then Jimmy, probably five nights later in Denver, he, he scored 50. He, I mm. remember that. I yeah. remember that. That's when y'all boys had it jumped. Yeah. I was like, these yeah. boys some fools. They back yeah. to back hitting 50. Yeah. We just didn't have a big. We just didn't have a big that can match up. You know, we had Popeye's undersized four, but we didn't have yeah. a big that could stay with some of the big boys, you know? When the craving hits... Thigh Stop delivers chicken thighs because nothing's better than our thighs in 11 mouth-watering, soul-satisfying flavors. Go lemon pepper thighs or spicy Korean Q thighs. Whatever you choose, you'll be satisfied. Go to thighstop.com now and get chicken thighs delivered right to your door. Thigh Stop, where flavor gets its thighs. Then you you go to Miami. Now you're going to a team that's Pat Riley is there. They playoffs and they trying to win a, a chip. And you got guys like Tim Hardaway and Lonzo Mourning. And, you know, y'all deep over there. A lot of veterans, a lot of guys that know how to play. And you four years in now, you know. How is that going to Miami? Knowing that you probably weren't finna be the leading scorer, but you finna be a part of a, a team and the organization of Miami, because like I always say, they one of the best organizations just the way they run it. They guys always in the tip top shape, and you really gotta beat a Miami Heat team ran by Pat Riley. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Um so Dan Marley, too. Yeah, I remember Marley. Thunder Dan, PJ, Thunder Dan yeah, and yeah, that yeah. Jones. PJ Brown and all those guys. Sean yeah. Leonard, yeah, all those mm -hmm. guys. Um Sean Leonard bust two ass when he first got the list. Bust his ass. I knew you were about to say that. That's all right, Sean Leonard. That's all right. That, bust that, his that ass. That happened. It's fact. Q on the sideline in Denver. I ain't had it. I ain't had it. I ain't had it. You used to have your inhale. With the Oscar man's best by Sean Leonard out there busting his ass so much in Denver. Uh, Denver, yeah. Oh, my bad. Yeah. My bad. My so bad. For, me, it was, uh, for me, it was um, uh, <laughs> I, I, a lot of people don't know this story, and I've shared it a couple times, is I actually forced my trade out of Dallas. Mm -hmm. Um. They had uh, hired Jim Clemens, who coached with the Chicago Bulls, who's right. the coach, and he wanted to run that triangle offense. And I tell people, man, I don't care what offense it is, Michael Jordan could make any offense look great. That, right. triangle, right. that triangle ain't for everybody, man. You know what yeah. I mean? And Shaq can make any off, Kobe can make any offense work, you know. But I had went to one of the minority owners, and the team was sold to a gentleman by the name of Ross Perot Jr. 
And um, they had minority owner. His name was Frank Zaccanelli. And he was he was cool. And I had just came off microfracture surgery. They had just got Michael Finley. They were highlighting him and different things like that. So I went to Frank Zaccanelli and was like, hey, man, y'all moving in a certain direction. It's time for me to move on. And me and him had an honest conversation. I was like, he was like, Jamal, where would you like to go? And that's very rare in itself. Yeah. And, and I said, um, I got two places I would like to go to um, extend my career and be a part of a winner. The first was the Indiana Pacers with Larry Brown. And the second was Miami Heat. Frank Zaccanelli said, OK, give me a couple of weeks. Let me work on it. And he came back and said, Miami. And um, they traded. I think it was Kirk Thomas and a couple of other players uh, in that deal that sent me to Miami. And when I got to Miami, my knee was still hurt. And I didn't have the proper rehab. And Pat Riley sat me down and was like, hey, just get through this because I got traded in February. So he was like, just get through the season and we'll address the rehab for you. You know, so me and Pat really connected. And so I was basically playing on one leg at that particular time and had to take a lesser role. And the pace was slowed down quite a bit because he wanted Mm -hmm. to, you know, get to morning. Yeah, get it to morning and stuff like that. And then when I got there, we had, I think we won 61 games that year and we played the uh, Chicago Bulls. Our first year we were together, we went to the Eastern Conference Finals and played against the Bulls and got our ass toe up. And yeah, y'all beat the Magic, beat the Knicks, and then lost to the Bulls. Correct. Correct. And um, playing against the Bulls, we were just, it just wasn't, you know, it, it playing against Michael Jordan against the Heat team. And the one thing about that Heat team that a lot of people didn't realize, we were so structured in how we approached the game with all the game plan and all that stuff. If you did anything else outside of that game plan, we were fucked. You know what I mean? Because we didn't know where you were going to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. And stuff like that. So in playing against Michael and um, they they just whooped our ass. And then we um, wound up playing against the Knicks multiple playoff times down the road. And one thing I will say, playing for the Heat and Pat Riley, Pat Riley is very similar to Coach Patino in the sense that he wants to hold you accountable. Yeah. And Pat Riley, I remember Pat Riley, we won like 16 games in a row and we lost game number 17 and he thought the world caved in. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, man, we just won all these. So, but he was really cool. And one thing about Pat Riley, he always had an open door approach with me. He was like, come in, knock on the door, whatever, whatever, we'll chop it up. And when Pat Riley's winning, he will give you anything. So if you wanted to get a contract extension, all you had to do was win. And Pat, mm-hmm. Pat would be like, all right, you know, you deserve it or whatever. But he was a veteran coach and we just didn't have enough to get past the Chicago Bulls. But from the standpoint of coming down here and being a part of a culture. And what he taught me was how to be a professional basketball player. Absolutely. There is a, a education that has to happen in order to be a pro. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, a lot of people, yeah. yeah, a lot of people don't know what it is to be a pro. And how I tell people to be a pro is it's not about money. Nah. It's about do you show up every day yeah. And put your best foot forward and do your job regardless of what's yeah. going on in your personal life. Yeah. Take maturity and, uh, too. Yeah. Yeah. So he taught me how to be a professional basketball player and a pro and how to go about it, the business of being a professional basketball player. So I owe a lot to him because I was searching for that leadership 
uh, from a veteran at the early part of my career. And the Mavericks just didn't have it. You know what I mean? And you really understand the difference between a winning culture and a losing culture. A losing culture, you hear a lot of complaining. You know what I mean? Uh, a lot, lot of complaining. But in the winning culture, you hear more about the we and the us. Yeah. You know, and that's what Pat Riley and the Miami Heat provided for me at that particular time. Now, I will say this: it's not for everybody. When you 100%. Play, yeah, it's 100%. not for everybody. You know, it's a uh, he'll push you to a particular point where I always tell people you got to be incredibly dumb or highly intelligent to play with Pat. There's no in-between. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> he wants you to either run through the wall and you say nothing, or you ask him the question, why are we doing this? You know what I mean? So even to this day, you know, I, I respect what he's been able to do and how he's been able to keep that culture, but he runs it like the military. Yeah, I tell people all the time, like, I only got one year there, right? And my relationship and my ties there are as strong as any team that I played the most years with and all those different things because it resonated with me because I, I grew up like that. My pops was yeah. a disciplinarian. My, uh, the coaches I played for, ain't none of that going on. I ain't never, you know what I'm saying, been able to run over no coach or nothing and always respected authority and stuff. But, like, when you get there, and it's just it's still the same way. Like you said, Pat got that open-door policy, and, it's, and it speaks true to what you said about how it's not a lot of complaining because – Top to bottom, they're gonna say, Oh, yep. you don't wanna do your workout or you don't wanna do this, or somebody arguing back and forth with the trainer with the about getting something. Yeah. Ain't no trainer about to argue with you. If you don't wanna do it, he's gonna say, All right, uh, this is how it goes. You do this, I'm not gonna argue with you. I'm gonna report this to the people I need to report it to. And when it comes to Pat, you're gonna hear from him. Yep. Now, if you got a real issue that you wanna do this, that, and third, the door is open. You can walk up there anytime you want. You think you right enough, go ahead and do that. But I ain't about to argue with you, and I'm not about to lose no sleep over what happens because we have a protocol that if you do this, I'll do that, and I'm, I'm hands off. I ain't got to sit here and go back and forth with you like a lot of organizations do, yeah. and that's the difference. You really yeah. see people, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting mad with you or arguing about No, you didn't do your thing. I have this to do, and then you'll hear about yeah. it. I remember, man, and I won't mention the guy's name. I don't want to embarrass him, but – if I miss, you know who he is, played a long time in the league and he got down to Miami. And a lot of people didn't know what the culture was. So we're playing in an exhibition game. And, you know, in an exhibition game, you know, if you lose it, sometimes people are chattering on the sideline or whatever. You know what I mean? And Pat, take this shit serious, man. The exhibition or not. We winning. It ain't about, you know, preseason, regular season, about winning. And the guy was chattering or whatever. He wasn't saying nothing at all or whatever. And, you know, you got assistant coaches that sit alongside and they hear it. Next morning we come in, he had this thing where he used to sit everybody on the baseline next to the wall before practice. Whistle and sit up against yep. that day. Wow. Yeah. 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 And then he had that blue card. You know what I'm talking about, Q? You know what I mean? Out the, the back pocket. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> bullet points. Look up bullet points. Yep. Make sure I'm on pads. <laughs> yeah. So he went through the whole game plan and everything like that. Last probably about 25 minutes. And at the end of his thing, he puts the thing back in his pocket. And he says, I heard you had a problem with me coaching last night. And the dude was like, no, nah, no, nah, I didn't say this. He said, you know what? You How much you make? The guy didn't say this. He said, you made $250,000. <laughs> I got that in the briefcase. You cut, get out of here. Cut him on the spot. 
And Do you the, hear me? I got I got that up in the office. I listen, one hundred percent. Let Chuck. Yeah. This is how I tell people: like, you don't just when you talk about you know people call Pat the Godfather, and this, you don't just become the Godfather. Like what you said, this is real, true evidence. Like everything ain't always pretty. Like you know, what yeah. I'm saying I talk about the situation where. You know, he was willing to do what he did, how they parted with D-Wade, and then they fixed it, and he came back. But, like, those are hard decisions that want the credibility he got, won't do. They Everybody, you know how they say, everybody want to be a star, want to be the boss until it's time to do what you got to do. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, he did those things. You hear stories about Pat putting his head in an ice bucket like he's going to drown himself to go crazy, or him going face-to-face with Shaq and willing to stand on what he's saying because those things, those are earned, not given. You, Like you said, you standing here telling us that story. You sat there and looked at him like, and you knew right then, like, that's gangster. Everybody yeah. in there knew. Like, that's gangster. <laughs> it was an example made that, yeah. you know, people, that's something that you threaten. That's something that somebody threatened. They don't just flat out just do and it's done and you over with. I have you around here with that type of Yeah, energy. and it's like, when those type of examples are made, you stand on what you stand on, like, and you you show that I am who I am, like, that's why you become those people, become those people. That's why Pat is revered the way he is mm-hmm. and he's like a living legend the way he is because he yeah. did those things. It's not like I just threatened or I talked about it and I said some of the craziest shit. No. I literally did some of the craziest things that people would be afraid to do. Yeah. He's about, he's about winning and that's it. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's about winning and uh, he cares more about the front of the Jersey than the back of the Jersey. You know, at the end of the day, he's, he's one person that I would say if he wasn't a basketball coach or president of the Miami heat, he can run any fortune 500 company. You know, he's a CEO, you know, he's the way he packages it. He legit. And, and, <laughs> yeah, he, he legit, you know what I mean? And he's, um, if you are connected to Pat Riley and you understand who he is, he'll fight for you for the rest of his life. If you a heat guy, you a heat guy. You know what right. I mean? But but if you're mm-hmm. on that fence, you're going to be on that fence. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if you're on the other right side up. of the fence, you're a damn near enemy. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, that, that's how he views it. So his eyes is definitely on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell me this about the Heat days, the Knicks series. That's exactly what I was about to like go the, to. The famous Knicks series of y'all, PJ Brown flipping folks, you know, and all that, and just the physicalness of it, the fights, just the it was Pat the beat Pat Riley brought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The beat Pat <laughs> Riley brought to yeah, y'all. It was- like how how was them series? Like tell us about the fun, man. It was fun, man. It, it was a lot of fun, but I tell you what, it was more football than basketball. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, because you had Anthony Mason, you had he was there uh, one time was a Nick guy. Um, you had Charles Oakley, mm-hmm. um, Patrick Ewan, um, and then you had the history of Pat Riley being the Knicks head coach mm-hmm. and coming down here to Miami. So it it, it was a lot of fun. The one interesting thing is you realize how big Nick basketball is because mm-hmm. they probably have more fans coming down to South Beach than we had fans in the Heat Arena. And I tell people <laughs> down here in Miami, this is a six borough of New York, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. You got a lot of people. You got a lot of people. <laughs> not in New York. Yeah, in Florida, man. All through yeah. Florida. So yeah. it was a lot of fun. And the problem that we ran up against the Knicks when they had – Latrell Sprewell and Allen Houston, Jeff Van Gundy. Yes, Jeff Van Gundy did a great job where he realized that we were going to be locked in on all your plays. 
we knew all your plays. You know what I mean? We practiced that. But when they started to freelance and do things that Spree and Allen Houston ball screens that were random, we ain't know what to do because we were based on rotations. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's how they were able to, to beat us. And then on the offensive end, you know, we play inside out. So we mm-hmm. had to drop it to Zoe and they didn't double team Zoe. They let Pat play him straight up. One on one. Yeah. So if he wasn't dominating, which he didn't do often, at least to an Asian Pat, Pat uh, Ewan at that time, the ball just stuck. But we would stay in games because we could defend. You know, his mm-hmm. scores was like 81, 80, you know, 85. Mm-hmm. Playing that thing, it was, it was physical, man. It was real. Yeah, I know the energy in the arena was crazy. Like, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, um, I would probably say it's two teams that came to town that the energy was high. Knicks, Boston. Not even Boston. Or the Lakers? Not even the Lakers. It was uh, Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls. Oh, Bulls. oh yeah, I'm Jordan. Bulls. That's right. Yeah, yeah, Bulls. That's the Bulls. Yeah, anyway, MJ go. It's yeah, all yeah, circus. Yeah. So, you you yeah. started to see, you know, MJ brought the women out, too. You know what I mean? They started wearing <laughs> their cocktail dresses. I mean, the arena looked different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Feel different, you know? And those two teams really uh, brought a different electricity to the party, especially down here in Miami. Do start bench cut. You got to start one, you got to bench one, you got to cut one. And uh, I'm staying small forwards. Uh, three different eras, Dominique Wilkins, Scotty Pippen, Tracy McGrady. Who you start, who you bench, who you cut? I'm, I'm starting Tracy McGrady. I'm, uh, uh, coming off the bench is uh, Dominique Wilkins. Now, this will be Dominique Wilkins at the back end of his career. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I won't disrespect him because he was a beast in the front of his career. You know, what I mean? <laughs> Scotty Pittman. I'm I'm cutting. I thought Scotty Pittman's a great player, but I thought um, I thought a lot of his defensive stuff was overrated a little bit. You know what I mean? Oh. Yeah. And and the reason I say that is because it's hard. You you guys both know you can't stop nobody individually in the league. Not at all. It's all about one stop. Yeah. You can't <laughs> you can't you can't stop nobody individually. So when they talk about all defense and all these different things. That to me is a little bit misleading because you're not going. You, you want you got double team people, man. You know what I mean. Yeah. And guys, yeah, you got to be good. a team, team defense. Yeah, yeah, guys are too good individually, and um, you know. But I, out of that group, I really like Tracy McGrady. I, I really like Tracy McGrady. I thought Tracy McGrady was um, a difference maker. I think he evolved the game as well. You know what I mean. Um, yeah. He was one of those players that. At six eight six nine, that if he played in this era, I mean, Curtin, yeah, he, he, he was one of the people that ushered in a new build, though, like a player build, like being six eight as a guard yeah. or a wing, and then you know being able to handle and do everything he could do. Shoot yeah. three, dunk that jump, pull up. I used to hate guarding him. Yeah, he yeah, was, he was a tough cover, too. especially he was a tough cover, really a tough cover in Orlando. That's what he has. That's every time he seen me at thirty in his pocket. Yeah, he, he, I like him. Dominique Wilkins. I mean, probably the best offensive rebounder I've ever seen. Man, he was a problem. He, he at the small four spot. He go get that thing, you know, and he ain't going to get it just to snatch. He going to get it to punch it on you, you know, straight up. And with, with that authority spin move, too. And a lot with of people don't realize too. his spin move there. He had a spin move that was 
uncanny. You know what I mean? He would drive real hard with two feet. Sped and just take off. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know what I want to take me back to 0203, right? Was it the gumbo, the etouffee, or the beignets? Because when you date, you know, you were Charlotte and they moved, they got relocated to New Orleans and and that might have been, you know, you know, arguably your best year. You know what I'm saying? You played all the games, you balled out. What was it about that year in New Orleans that everything just clicked for you? Yeah, I remember that year. Yeah, my so, ass and yeah, we ca I caught fades that year. I, I, I was handing fades out, and I was a two. I was on three. the worst team in the NBA, yeah, and they yeah, fucked yeah. us up. What you saying? <laughs> so you know what's funny is, um, and, and you guys both know this and understand the politics of the game is that usually when you make an All Star team, it's because of the year you had beforehand. You know what I mean? Kind of, yeah, yeah. kind of. Ain't because of that half a year. It's because of what you work you've put in over a period of time. Especially if you're not voted in by the fans, by the coaches, but. For me, you know what it came down to is a couple of things. It was uh, Paul Silas, and he's the main reason. And what I mean by that was when I got traded from the Heat to Charlotte, I actually didn't find out until I was actually at a concert, the Up and Smoke tour, that concert in Miami. Hey. So I found out, you know, uh, somebody hit me on the phone and said, you just been traded. They saw it on the ticker on ESPN as I was driving up to Fort Lauderdale for that concert to see Snoop and Eminem and, and Ice Cube. And um, I remember it was a week later going to Charlotte and we were working out or something like that. And he watched us play pickup basketball and Paul Silas pulled me to the side and he was like, hey, young fella, let me tell you something. He said, the handcuffs is off here. Go hoop. Mm -hmm. Because I was coming from a system in Pat Riley where we slowed it down. You know, you had your position and all that stuff. And it wasn't a lot of opportunity for me to just go play. And Paul Silas says, hey, man, this ain't Miami no more. We need you to hoop, man. We need you to be an all-star. And the other guy that helped me flourish was um, my guy, uh, two guys, Baron Davis and uh, um, and uh, Derek Coleman. And uh, yeah, so... Aaron, uh, he just had that youthful energy, man, uh, uh, off the wall. You know, uh, I thought, in my opinion, I used to tell Baron, I said, man, listen, man, you can be an all-time great, man. And man. he was the most talented guy that I ever seen at that point guard spot, man. Big size, jump, understanding yeah, game. Yeah. yeah. And just a great personality. And also Derek Coleman, he was the perfect player for me because he can step out and I can post up. And he can draw the defense. So, and then also Paul Silas, from that particular standpoint, he just kept on reiterating to me, it's your show. It's your show. Go do your thing. And that's how me and Paul communicated. And, you know, certain times in your life as a coach, you don't need somebody to tell you what to do. You just need somebody to believe in you. Right. You know, and um, that's what Paul did for me. So that's how I started to take off. And that's when I made that all star team. And, um, we did pretty well, but then that next year, it was just um, Paul got fired. They hired Tim Floyd, I think it was, or somebody like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. That ain't work out. And uh, <laughs> um, it went south from there. And I thought Paul Silas, part of the reason why he didn't stay is they didn't want to pay him. You know, um, they had him cheap, you know, from uh, a holdover. And mm -hmm. I thought he should have got paid. And I thought Paul is probably one of the more excellent coaches that we don't even really talk about in this league. Oh yeah, yeah. Paul was my coach. I think we he wasn't ready for us. 
Nah, Paul's, Paul's, a, Paul's a veteran coach. Paul's yeah, a veteran. Yeah, yeah. When, when, when we got LeBron, it was me, LeBron, and Ricky Davis, and he had us running that full high old Utah offense, and it was like, man, he, he killed me. He put me at point guard. I was getting ripped once a night <laughs> trying to set that shit up. I'm trying I'm holding, trying to set it up, and it's like, rip? I'm like, damn, every night. <laughs> but once, once, you, once you get past that part of it, you know, he lets you play with freedom. You know, yeah, he one of my favorite coaches yeah, yeah. because he was just real. He yeah. was just real. Like I can accept real, like the sugar coating, the sneaking, saying this behind your back. And then you looking at me <laughs> in my yeah, face at practice like I didn't like that. Yeah, the bullshit. I, I, I didn't like that either. <laughs> That's why I like Pat Riley so much, you know, because yeah. Pat Riley wasn't sugar coated. He, you know, it, regardless if I didn't think it was true or whatever or whatever it was. Pat Riley always shot me straight. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I respected that about him. I don't really do well with people dancing around stuff or, or sugarcoating it. You know, tell me what it is. And and I think all great players and good players want to be held accountable and want to be coached. You know, they want to get better. You know, so that that's how I always view it. Tell me this. How was it? That year when you made the All-Star, how was it when you going to the event, you got the call? Like, how was it to achieve that? It was... Um, Especially something that you felt like you had been before. You know that, what I'm saying? That was my 10th year in the league, and I made my first All-Star game. And um, it felt like... Uh, it felt oh, like... Times. Yeah, it felt like <laughs> that, but it also felt like I didn't need to need it for validation anymore. Mm-hmm. At that point, you... You know like, what I mean? I'm like, you know, my peers know what I can do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I remember that was actually Michael Jordan's last All-Star game when he was with the Wizards. And the highlight for me of that All-Star game was, you know, Michael Jordan and me and him interacting. And that's the first time I had a really been a deep conversation with him on the court. And he broke down every aspect of my game off rip and told me some things to do. And I was like, okay. He was like, you know, play the game within the game. And I was yeah. like, this dude is serious, man. Like, <laughs> that serial killer when it yeah, goes. <laughs> and, I'm like, and then he went to every other forward and was like, he does this, he does that. Oh, this is how you neutralize that. And because um, the conversation started with, hey, man, show me how you do the fadeaway jump shot and I'll show you how I do mine. And because I used to like to turn over my right shoulder. Yeah, we know. Yeah, we know. Yeah, we know. Yeah. So so MJ used to show me some things and then he would started telling me a story about how he got indoctrinated into the league with Larry Bird and Dr. J and how you can play a game within the game. And he started telling me, hey, Jamal, just go right one time and make it a point in the game to make one shot going right. He's like, you like to go left a lot. I'm like, yeah, I like to go left. And he started telling me about how Larry Bird approached the game. He got to make two left-hand layups one season uh, in each game to improve his left hand. So I started to realize how much depth Michael Jordan had as a basketball player in his IQ. That's why I say that he's the greatest of all time. The, The argument for LeBron and different things like that is great, but Michael Jordan, what he's been able to do and elevate this thing to a different level. And LeBron has elevated as well. I just think Michael is just a step above, man. You know, um, yeah. a killer. You ain't going to get no arguing over here. You ain't going to get no <laughs> talking back over here. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I don't even know if you're aware of this, but you you one of only six players 
To, Leaders, like, to, to your last year in the league, you averaged dub. You, you walked out this joint <laughs> averaging dub plus, peace and then you dub. got and you got you got it. And <laughs> peace just listen to the other people though. It's Jerry West, Larry Bird, Drajan Petrovic. Rest in peace. Rest in peace to Reggie Lewis, the great. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then lastly, MJ. Yeah. Like, how do that feel? And like you said, I, I feel like to me, like that's one of them things that that's how I looked at my last year. I played 13 years and I I could say I've started my last year in my career. I take pride in that because us as players, we know what yeah. that means. For you to say, that's on a whole nother echelon to say I average a dub out here yeah. my last year. Yeah, you know I how hard away. it is to average a dub in the league. That To me, that means like I could have played again if I want to. I walked out averaging a dub. So what do yeah. you mean? I was going to average 15 or something next year? Yeah. <laughs> so like how, like, how does that feel? Because that's a major accomplishment to know yeah. It's only six of y'all, and then those names that you reside with in that category. How does that make? I don't even bitch you know that, and how does that make you feel? Yeah, people have said that, and I, I never really took any stock in that. And then I, I, uh, my son did some research on because you know he's 19 years old, and he plays too, but he grows up in that LeBron era, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so in D Wade era, you know what I mean? So I when he was younger through the house. And actually, he used to his favorite player when he was younger was Ricky Davis for some reason. Tricky Ricky, Ricky, Ricky. Slick Ricky, Tricky Ricky, Slick Ricky. Yeah. Yeah. He loved him. You know, running through the house, Ricky Davis. I'm like, wow, okay. And uh, so, so he actually showed it to me because I had this to hit him to uh, to search me online. Be like, yo, I can play a little bit, man. You better say right. I'm Googleable. Google me, bro. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a. It's a great feeling and everything like that to be a part of that company and stuff like that. But the story behind that is I actually walked away from $24 million for the uh, the Pelicans. Oh, uh, man, you know yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. money on the wood? Yeah. So they offered, me, on the food. Yeah, they, they, they offered me an extension to stay. And um, in the beginning of the season, I was like, nah, I can't do it. You know what I mean? Because I... My also my person, it was a two year, $24 million deal back then. And I just said, you know, I just don't feel right. I, I don't feel like I can play to that level. You know what I mean? I, I And I was a guy that I respect veteran guys like Vince Carter and different things like that, that they're able to transition. Mm-hmm. I knew more about me that that was going to be tough on me. You know yeah. what I mean? I, not being who you were. Yeah, not the, yeah, I was like, I, you playing the season for three people. Like, yeah, like we got to get yeah. three people together in the season. Yeah. Like, that's I'm hard. just like, I couldn't do it. I, I knew that. I was like, you know what? I need to play 30-something minutes a game. I wasn't a guy that can come in and get you 15 and, you know, right and, be, and be in a locker room happy about it. I, I wasn't. Yeah. Let me just speak for him. I don't know how many other people. I know a lot. You're a better man than the rest of us. We took that two years, 24, and been complaining like a you son. You know that, like Two yeah. years, 24, I'm going to go ahead and sign up, and we're going to make it. We're going to make it. We're going to figure they, it they, they they out. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that. And, and, and a lot of people looked at me like I was crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, you know, but for me, it was uh, what I ultimately wanted to do, and I think it was the best decision for me, it gave me the freedom to now pursue full-time my business stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I was willing to take that hit to go out there and uh, 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 get in the entrepreneurial world or stay in the entrepreneurial world without having that, that you know, because as you guys know, it's just not the season. It's year round, you know, yeah, that, right. that, that they pay. They pay you to practice, not to play. That's essentially. Yeah. So tell me, as you speaking on your businesses and your entrepreneurial stuff, like, 
you own over 90 something businesses and outbacks and everything you got going. What was the first business you owned and what made you like, how did you come into it? What made you want to do it? And just how did you decide what to choose to go into and what you were going to do? Yeah. My first business decision I tell people was at 10 years old. I was originally a baseball player. And I grew up uh, across the street from Yankee Stadium and used to go to a lot of baseball games. And my dad took me to a baseball tryout at 10 years old and I got cut. And I tell people my, I made a decision to go play basketball. So that was my first business decision. You know what I mean? I really recognized <laughs> right. I wasn't good. You know what I mean? And I <laughs> right. The first business decision as far as uh, companies are concerned, one of the first one was Outback Steakhouse. And um I got a chance to know the founder, Chris Sullivan, and he went to University of Florida and also University of Kentucky as well. And he got word that I wanted to be involved in business. So when I got drafted, um, like I was saying earlier, I was fortunate enough to have a sign a pretty significant deal at the time with FIBA. And so I had capital to kind of, you know, do my thing. And how it came about was I'm sitting down with my business manager at the time, and he was a young guy, 33 years old at the time. And a part of him signing on with me was that he had to teach me everything he knew about accounting and finance. And he had his master's in finance. So every day we sat down and we drilled it basically on my own balance sheet and cash flow statement. And he said, what do you want to be in? And uh, we had a discussion and what came out of it was food, transportation and housing. So food being restaurants or whatever that required transportation at the time, had no idea that that meant automobile business, you know, which I'm involved in. And housing meant real estate, you know, which is which I'm involved in as well. So it was very simplistic, you know, and through relationships. And we were fortunately with Chris Sullivan, he was trying to grow his company out back at the time. Mm-hmm. And he had three other partners and we pitched in with some capital and became a limited partner in uh, a territory in Northern California. And that had grew to about 30 some stores, got out of that and then uh, continued to roll with the car business in Papa John's. So, was you, was you eating that Outback before you chose? You, you know, know Outback guy? Nah, you know what's funny is um, it's interesting. Um, so, when you were an investor in Outback, at least on, with the group that I had, you would get an Outback card and it would look like a credit card mm-hmm. and it had your name and it was like you're an investor. So, you can go in to any Outback in the world and show that card. And you can eat for free. So you don't use yours, huh? Never use you, it. You, you want to send it to me? <laughs> <laughs> Never use it. Never use it. And what's funny is, uh, you know, that's where I learned a lot about business. It was yeah. in the car dealerships, understanding that of how not to lose money, mm-hmm. but also how to make money, you know? So for me, it was always... Since my father was a professional boxer and he never made a lot of money at it and I grew up in the projects, I never wanted to go back to the projects. So Mm -hmm. that was my main goal. It was not that I didn't enjoy my time, but in the projects, but you don't know you broke until you see the other side. You know what I mean? Let me ask you this, uh, because I'm telling my little cousin this because I'm telling them like we need to start, you know, more our business. I'm more in my business mind now than I was back when I was making all the, the NBA money. But most families don't grow up with anybody in their family telling them about owning anything they sell. You know what I'm saying? Or they don't grow up getting no type of financial literacy 
how you you suck out from dude. He had the mask, and you like, I need to know it. Like I can yeah. get, you, I can pay you to do it, but I'd rather Correct. know it myself too. Like so, when did somebody put that in you of like, man, you need to own something. It don't stop at the NBA check, but you need to own something yourself. You need to know financial literacy, and this can help create a generational wealth. So it was, um, it was my mom. My mom was from Beckley, West Virginia, and then she moved to New York City at 18 years old. And if anybody knows anything about Beckley, West Virginia, it was a coal mining state. And there's not a lot of opportunities there back there in the 60s and 50s for African-American women. You know, she wanted to go to the military and my grandfather was in the military. and He told her not to go because of all the challenges that women faced in the military. Mm -hmm. So he shipped her up to New York City and she wanted to be an accountant as well. But she didn't go to college and couldn't afford to go to college. And my mother was actually the bookkeeper for the New York City Housing Authority. So when people in the projects would go to the rent office, they would be she would collect the rent. And she would balance the books and everything like that and, and keep a chart of accounts. So when I was younger, my mother couldn't afford aftercare, which is like a daycare center or whatever like that. You know, so I was a latchkey kid that came home and did everything on my own. And sometimes I would go to her office and she taught me about debits and credits and how to balance a book and, and all these different things, how everything had to equal up at the end of it. And so my mom also didn't believe that I needed to be in Harlem all the time. She mm -hmm. wanted to take me outside of Harlem. So she took me around New York City. She would uh, show me uh, museums. She would sometimes take me to um, dinner places and she didn't eat. And she taught me how to read off a menu at an early age. So what she was really teaching me was not to be afraid of anything, you mm -hmm. know, and always ask a question and always be curious. And then she also told me the story about my dad. My dad was a very good heavyweight boxer, but he didn't make the right choices of people to manage him. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so she always inserted into me of being able to identify what is the right choice for longevity rather than the short term. Mm -hmm. So that came from my mom. And then looking at it from my side of it, it was I always wanted to own something you know um i always wanted to so think of your your signature of your game of who you are as a player i wanted to own that for me so it only made sense that anything that i participated in i wanted to own that as well mm -hmm. and um i never wanted my kids to start from zero like i did mm -hmm. you know so it's very important for me to build something not for me but for them so that they can make choices to play basketball or not to play and not play for play. the fun of it. Yeah, I money. have a job for you. I have a job for I, you. I and if you, you really do the due diligence and do what you're supposed to do, you can correct. have it and own it yourself. Correct, correct. That's, so that's what the, I always say about my kids. I'm trying to create these jobs where like, they don't got to play basketball. I got something for them. And yeah. if they really want to do something with it, they can own it. Yeah, so that's the philosophy that I have. And... One of the things that I tell my kids is that your work ethic opens up your talent. You know, um, there's no there's no way around that. You know, what I mean, I've seen a lot of talented guys who don't work and they never really realize their full potential. And that's for sports, business and all these different things. But life. Yeah. I've always said to myself that, hey, you know what? I don't have an appetite for working for somebody. 
and going through the professional basketball career, you realize that you work for somebody, mm-hmm. you know? And um, I always wanted to be the person that could make the vision and make it come alive and employ other people and give them an opportunity as well. So that's always been my philosophy is ownership for somebody else to own. And so they can live out their dream as well. What he's speaking on is being a real boss. It's not, it's a difference between, hey, you make a lot of money. You tell him, I'm a boss, I'm this, I'm that. I'm like, I got money. Like, no, 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 no. There is a difference. And that is what you speak of. Like when you own shit, and when you call the shots and when you pressing the buttons and when you the puppet master, that's the real boss. Yeah. When you playing in that league, like you said, you playing for whatever and you get your check and it say such and such name on, that means you work for them. Yeah. yeah. Bottom line. Like until you till you making that bread yourself and you making your own income and you signing and you signing checks and paying other people, that's when you are the boss. Yeah. The future generation that's coming and the kids that's uh the guys that's out there now. They need to hear that it don't stop when you get these NBA checks. It's still like a lot of work to do. Like it's still you get out there and do businesses and yeah. and, and just build foundations. Whether you building communities, whatever you doing, it don't stop when you get that check. When you like, oh, I'm done. I made it. You know, yeah. that was one of them feelings I had. Like, oh shit, million dollars. Ain't nobody ever told that to me. I'm good. I'm gonna live yeah. forever. But and I it see- don't work like that. It's like, man, you gotta continue to get out here and. Like I say, a lot of our families of our color never teach us about generational wealth. Never teach us, give us financial literacy. They've never been to college and did all that stuff. They don't teach us also, too, how to transfer. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean wealth. That means knowledge, too. Knowledge, yeah. yeah. um, The generations go by. It's generation and generation. So when you finally get somebody to just break through that generation, that's where you can stop that tide. Yeah. You can stop well, that like, tide in your family. Yeah, I like what a lot of guys are doing. I get a lot of calls from different guys. I really like what you know Carmelo's doing, what mm-hmm. Kevin Durant's doing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I really I got a chance to speak to Kevin last year at the game before COVID. And I told him, I said, man, keep going, man. I mean, it's yeah. you know, we need a lot more former players involved in ownership and not just majority and not just the ones with big brands. Real I talk. think the NBA was built on big brands, but the people that carry the NBA as the body yeah. of the NBA. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think it's important for us to now seek out ownership and different things like that. I mean, you know, I love what Michael Jordan has done, but I also love to see guys like, um, you know, um, I forgot his name, what Magic has done. and uh, Junior Bridgman. Junior yeah, Bridgman. He's another guy yeah. that yeah. I speak to quite a bit. That um has done a lot. D-Way of- just did. Yeah. Uh, Grand Hill mm-hmm. just got in the game. Shaq, like right. I'm, I'm proud of guy. Cause we we got a bu- we ain't have a bunch of millionaires at first, but now we got a bunch of millionaires. So now <laughs> we 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 going in the direction of we need a bunch of billionaires with our skin color mm-hmm. on it so too. My, you know, my card in the hat. I'm, I want to be one of the guys that's reaching out to you and getting okay. some of that knowledge and, and you know what I'm saying, figuring yeah. things out. Because I, I got some ish I yeah. want to do too. Yeah, anytime. I mean, yeah. I'm a I'm an open book and I, I share it with guys. And most of the time, when guys tell me stuff that they want to do, I I'm more on the personal side and meaning that let's identify what your passion is. Mm-hmm. And then let's identify what skill sake is going to take in order to live that passion. Now, some yeah. people's passion may pay a lot more. Other people's passion may not pay. And that's called a hobby. You know what I mean? And nothing yeah. wrong with a hobby. But if you got a hobby that actually generates income, now we're talking on a different scale because 
just like when you picked up that basketball, you'd have picked it up for free. And it's mm-hmm. something that yeah. I tell my daughter and my son. It's like when they talk about, well, what should I do? Well, tell me the things that you would do for free. What you love. Yeah. yeah what you do for love, free. Because I let you know you ain't yeah. going to die out on the ring. You ain't going to get tired of Correct. it. Correct. Yeah. And, and it, it's a, I don't necessarily chase a number as much as I chase information and knowledge. I'm what you call a, uh, a true student athlete. You know what I mean? I felt that if I fed the student side, my athletic career would continue. You know what I mean? If yeah. I just fed my athlete side, then, you know, I'll turn into something else. But anytime you guys need any information or, or whatever, or a sounding board, man, be happy to do so. Oh, man, appreciate yeah. that. OJ. Appreciate that. Appreciate I, I, I want to <laughs> salute you for being one of the hoopers that, you know, did it a different way and showing us a different example. Because like, like we always say, man, we definitely wanted you on here because we love your game and we grew up watching your game and respected it and we played against you the same. But but also, we supposed to be here to do this with this platform to educate the others like us that's coming behind us and they need to see and it need to be a bullhorn blasting you, Junior Bridgman, and everybody else is doing what y'all are doing. Because, like, yeah, you was dope. You was an all-star. You was all that. You was a shit at hoop. But, like, you done did some things in the business world and in the business realm that our guys need to know about. Because like you say, they have the abilities to do it too. And they can tap into these resources and do these things for their family and their kids, kids behind them, like the way you have. And for me, when I started finding that, so I'm like, damn, man, burned in. I was like, man, I was, I was thoroughly impressed and blown away because like you say, they don't like, we didn't even view ourselves like that. Yeah. Like forget they don't view us like that. Like, it took the Michael Jordans, the use, the Junior Bridgmans, the Magics, those people to even for us to view ourselves like that. So, like you say, to see KDs, Mellows, D Ways, LeBron, LeBron, CP, all these guys yeah. doing what they doing, Dane. Proud of the boys. That's man. because of guys like you and the ones before you. So, I mean, uh, we felt that our, you know, it was our duty to bring you on here and showcase. That was one of the biggest parts that I really wanted to get out there was everything you're doing in business and how. You got over 90 some, like you got over 90 some businesses that you own. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. These guys you need to, these guys you know need to hear That's this. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I do it quietly, and that's just my personality. You know what I mean? I just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're not out here like, hey, 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 ain't hey. Wrong, it's like, yeah. that's the part I love ain't too. Wrong, like, yeah. you, you ain't even like, you here, but it's like, if anybody want to holler at me, I'm here, but like, I'm yeah. not really out here, like, put thrusting myself out there and nah. stuff. Like, that's the super gangster part about it. I just feel like a lot of guys have the, you have the opportunity and you have the blessing and you have the resources. the resources. But I also tell guys that you are one of the original entrepreneurs. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And just nobody mm-hmm. has told us that we are entrepreneurs. Just because we picked up a sport at an early age, that's entrepreneurial. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And what's the difference between us going out in the projects, playing basketball to hone our skills and Bill Gates in a in a garage working on his computer thing? You know what I mean? So, I mean, I just look at it. I- IPOs are just different. It's the draft. You know, they have the stock mm-hmm. market. It's, it's just. But then when you look at Bill Gates and him starting Microsoft, he don't stop at Microsoft. Yeah. He's doing other stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's why I say I want 10 different incomes. Yeah. I want 10 different things. And the other thing things, I want to salute you on, OG, is because not everybody that gets in your position is as willing to share those gems and to share those secrets. And, the, and, the, and yeah, the, you know, a lot talk. of people, 
hide their answers over here. Like, you ain't looking out my paper. The game is sold, not be told. And and like, you know, when you playing this game, you know that. We all know different people just achieve this, achieve that, and they want to be the only one over here doing that. Say, oh, I got this, I got this, but they want to show you how they got that. So I always appreciate guys like you that's willing to open up and share and help in any way you can because we know that everybody ain't like that. We ain't gonna call well, no names, but that's well, just I've been what there. it is. I've been there. We probably talking about the same people. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> thing I love about this era now, some of these, a lot of these guys are getting together and they doing business ventures together. They talking on the court and they talking about this. So they, they putting their money together where, oh, you don't have to pay for all that. Let's do it together. And we get it on together. But back in our era, we didn't communicate the way that these cats communicate now, so I'm definitely proud of these cats these I, days I, I, communicating. Are you sure about that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, what you're saying is not all the way true, my brother. Man, tell them. I'm telling you, yeah. I talked to, I talked to, it's not people who got them keys. Why you think DJ Kelly was saying they didn't want to show us the keys? He was talking about the same thing. The guys that got the access don't always share it. So and those that yeah. do share it, that's why they need to be cherished that much more because it, it, it's not as common as, it, as it's supposed to be. Oh, real talk. I'm, I'm definitely with so that. For, that's what I was saying. Yeah, so for me, them keys. for me, it's always been, and what Q's talking about or referencing is that I've been in that position where a lot of people didn't know what I was doing while I was playing. I wouldn't say anything, but then I would ask them for, well, I heard you doing this. Show me that. And I know, I know that what the response is. I already be. know what you're doing. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I've done uh, the same exact thing. Yeah, yeah. I've done that and, too. And, yeah. and, uh, was, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't share it. And they Crickets. also would look at you differently for even asking yeah. the question. You know what I mean? And, and even if whatever you do won't even affect their money, they still won't even give it to you. And I've come <laughs> to the realization that I'm not. For a long time, I struggled with it because I used to be like, "Damn!" Like I thought we was like, and then it was like, "Okay," I had to kind of go through my thing mentally and be like, all right, I can't hold that against them because who knows why they're like that. Maybe something happened to them where they helped somebody and they burned them or did it wrong and screwed something up. And so they just like, I ain't never doing that no more. So I try not to hold that personally against people, but it doesn't change. That's the fact. That remains. It's still a fact that that happens way too often with us that I feel like everybody should just be trying to share and help each other. And and, and it's not always and like And my that. experience has not only been from my peers, it's also been from owners and former owners, you know yeah. what I'm saying? So, yeah. so um, it's one thing that I've made a promise to myself is that anybody that comes to me and wants information and I can help, I'm going to do so because it's my duty and responsibility. Up. Don't block them blessings. Yeah, you know what I mean? So it's, it's uh, cause, uh, I, when you have somebody that's searching for information, why not share it? You know what I mean? Why not, why not share it? it? You know, I, and that's the part that I talk about where, I'm excited for you guys and what you guys are doing because you're providing a platform for other players to figure out what their post basketball career can look like. You know what yeah. I mean? And, yeah. and, 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 and in an organic way. And that, that's and me yeah. following you guys. That's the biggest thing that I've seen is that this has grown organically. You know? Yeah, it has. Like, it surprised us, man. It's truly a blessing, man, how people is really rocking with us and even OGs and guys like, yeah, just coming on and just telling us, like, man, this is, we doing the right thing. It makes you feel good that we in the, going in the right direction. Yeah. When you spit the truth, man, it's hard for it not to work. 
You know what I mean? I be telling Q that all the time. He don't be wanting to listen. Matt, listen, I got I got one question before we wrap it up and let you get out of here. I just want to, because you got one of the most legendary, we talk about all the time, like everybody want to get a nickname, but like when did you start becoming and being called Monster Mash? Like that, like, you know, that's like a song, everything. That's like one of the, like, how did you feel when you got it? How did you get it? And, and just tell me the story of Monster Mash. So there are two parts to it. So um, two parts to it. One has nothing to do with basketball and the other one does. Um, so I lived on the eighth floor in the projects and um, uh, my best friend, uh, he grew up on the 14th floor. He had a brother named Jamal. And he was younger. He's about five years younger. So his mom, we were walking somewhere. So instead of her calling me Jamal and him Jamal, she called me Mash. And that stuck throughout the neighborhood. People started calling me Mash. So my sophomore year in high school, I played in this event. It was like a Christmas classic or something like that in New York City. And one of the colleges was there and it was packed. And they had one of the guys that does the entertainers basketball classic on the mic. (laughs) Yes. So I was a sophomore and he just came out and I think I scored like 12 points in a row as a freshman and as a sophomore playing varsity. And he was like, monster mash on the microphone. I didn't think anything of it the next day in the paper, because you go check the paper the next day to see, you know, see what's going on. See what yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, see yeah. if they got a clip yeah. of me or so then something. It, <laughs> then the, the title, the headline said, Monster Mash Dominates, and it stuck. Ooh. And then when I got to college, people in Kentucky adopted it for, um, what is it called? Uh, Midnight Madness. It was held around Halloween yeah, exactly. time. It started playing that Monster Mash song. Halloween yeah. time. So that's yeah. how it continued uh, to stick. Wow. That actually started in New York City and Harlem before that, my sophomore year. And then it kind of just took hold or whatever and stuff like that. So it, it was, I always tell people, you can't give yourself a nickname. Somebody else got to bestow it on you. You know what I mean? To make it all Straight authentic. up. Straight up. Oh, that's definitely one of the special ones, man. That's definitely one of the dopest ones, man. The last <laughs> question before we get you out of here. I always got to ask is, you know, you come from the projects. We all from the hood, humble beginnings. We see the building behind you. Not include mom, dukes, or family. What did you do when you first got paid? You said you got some good feline money. Was this, did you off the top go start the going into businesses or did Yo, you, what, did what you what treat you yourself? Again, did you get, man. did you get a nice watch, a whip? I know you had to get some wheels. What, what you did? Well, you know, what's funny is, uh, my first ride was actually, I didn't buy it. It was uh, a signing bonus from Fila. It was a Ferrari 380 Spider. Oh, yeah. wait. Yeah, they gave me a Ferrari. Yeah, they gave me a Ferrari as a part of my signing bonus. And um, I actually signed the contract in New York City and they dropped it off in a playground. They did a whole thing or whatever. And funny thing about it, I didn't know how to drive a stick. so i was 19 years old and um and then i went to get the thing insured and i they was like it's going to be a premium for you to insure it so i sold the car to a dealership the guy at the dealership and i got me a what was it it was the first four-seater convertible two-door mercedes when they first came out and it was a red with a black top with black interior. And I got that and the, I traded it in, got some cash back. And the guy who bought the car, the Ferrari for me, uh, he was a high wealth individual out of Kentucky. He told me to sign the hood and a Sharpie. 
and he he still has the car to this day. And um, so that so for me, I think the first purchase that I made that was significant was a couple of things was um, we talked about earlier of finding shoes, man. You know what I mean? I think oh, I yeah, went to yeah. the joint in Atlanta. What's that shit? Frederick. Yeah, Freeman's. 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 Yeah. Freeman's. You know, we got to get yeah, the dress yeah. shoes right. Freeman. I think I walked out of there and with like 20 pair gators or something like that. And I think I'm like 45 grand. <laughs> 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 20 pair of gators, baby. You know? In all colors. You know what I mean? All Straight colors. Because you know? that was the first time I ever had to buy, could buy what I liked. Whatever you want in that job. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was my first big purchase. And then I um I think when I went to Dallas, I bought a home that was sight unseen. You know what I mean? And uh, uh it wasn't built, it was like in the pre pre-stages, and I think it was a seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar house. I think that was my first purchase. Yeah. Nice. Mm. Yo, we appreciate this. This has been amazing, man. We got the man, the myth, the legend. Monster UK's Mash. finest, Harlem's finest, Legend. Monster Mash in the business world. After basketball, we all looking up to my man, man. We appreciate you coming through, Jamal. Monster Mash burn, y'all. Man, Q and, and D Miles, thank you, man, for having me on this platform. I really enjoy and love what you guys are doing. Anything you guys need from me, business or personal wise, I'm here for you and to support you in any particular way. But I had a great time chopping it up with you guys. All right, we want to thank y'all for your continued support of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to give us two taps by writing a review and rating five stars wherever you get your podcast. And make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. You can also find all the episodes on the Players Tribune YouTube page. Follow us on social media at Knuckleheads Podcast and join our Knuckleheads Facebook group for exclusive content. Thanks again to all of our guests and fans. This wouldn't be possible without y'all. The Players Tribune dot com.